Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we have the opportunity to wrap up our reflections on this wonderful topic that is theology of the body. We have been going through from one week to the next Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, which, as you know, if you are a faithful listener to this radio program, is a reflection into the first half of Benedict's work, God is Love, where he reflects into the relationship between eros and agape. Once again, eros, that human erotic love, and agape, that divine, sacrificial, cross-like love, and the unique relationship that exists between the two, how ultimately uh, agape fulfills eros, how agape is the finished form of eros. And this evening is our last evening together on this book. We are going to wrap up our study of the love that satisfies. And this does not mean that we will stop our treatment of theology of the body. It has been too popular for me to stop talking about the stuff of theology of the body. While Derek Allen and Chris Seibert are not with me this evening to wrap up our discussion, they will certainly continue to join me in upcoming weeks with some of the upcoming things we talk about. We will continue to get into new reads, um, some articles, whatnot. Stay tuned for all of that. As far as the work itself, the love that satisfies, we are again in this last chapter, The Journey of Love, which in its own way has taken the first chapter, Encountering God Who Is Love, and brought us to a point to really see how our journey into God's love is one that can be only understood in light of the encounter. And as Chris and I talked last week, it's to remember that the encounter itself, while it is a response of grace on our part, it was something that was first initiated by God himself. So we encounter God's love, and out from this encounter, we journey deeper into the mystery of his love. So it is right that uh, this evening we wrap up our discussion on our journey into love with more critique into how we are to better understand this journey in light of the encounter. If there is one overarching truth that I have been talking about, just not on this radio program devoted to theology of the body, but more collectively every night that I come here into this radio station talk about the Christian and Catholic faith, it is the in God for other moment that we cannot even begin to understand all of the external activity around us if we have not first understood what it means to be in God, if we have not first understood the importance of the interior life. Why? Because the interior life, always and everywhere, instructs and guides what we see on the outside, because what comes from within forms and informs what comes from without. Okay, so with that, we turn to page 150 in The Love That Satisfies and go to excerpt 61, and that is quote number 61 from Benedict's work, God is Love. And so Benedict says this, As I grow in love, 
I learn to look on this other person, not simply with my eyes and with my feelings, but from the perspective of Jesus Christ, going beyond exterior appearances, I perceive in others an interior desire for a sign of love, of concern, seen with the eyes of Christ. I can give to others the look of love which they crave. Hmm. Now, Christopher West in this book shares a personal story that I'm not going to necessarily read because I have my own personal story, if you will, that I would like to share with you. It is a story that takes us to my time in Washington, D.C. in the year uh, 2000 and the opportunity I had to go to the gift of peace. The gift of peace in Washington, D.C. is the house of formation for the missionaries of Charity Sisters. And I spent some days working with those sisters, and in particular with those who they were taking in. Now remember, these are the missionaries of Charity Sisters, right? So they go to the poorest of the poor, and in this region, it was those who were suffering with AIDS, those who were, for all intents and purposes, in their last days. Now, I didn't necessarily know this, uh, but I was aware, certainly, that we were dealing with the poorest of the poor. And so I want to go back to my first day there, where I was introduced to uh, the novice master, and she was showing me around, and after she showed me around, you know, their operation, she took me upstairs, and she had me uh, work hands-on with some of the residents there, one of which went by the name of Dennis. My first assignment at the Gift of Peace was to care for Dennis and uh, to clean him and to clothe him and uh, to do everything that a, a nurse might do. I Dennis was definitely in his last days, uh, very weak, very frail, very vulnerable. And so myself and another person were caring for his every need. And I remember bathing him because he did not have the capacity to do so. And it was a very difficult thing for me. I'm not going to lie to you. It was very difficult in my humanity. And in fact, I went home that evening so overwhelmed by the fact that I was overwhelmed by what I didn't want to do that I went before the Blessed Sacrament. I just asked God, why am I struggling with this? Why am I having such a difficult time with this? And I heard God speak to me in that still, quiet voice. Joe, you seek to do something great without first coming to me. Of course you're going to struggle with this. Of course you're going to have a difficult time with this because you have not turned to me. So I spent that whole night in prayer, begging God for the grace, for the strength, for the courage to be honest with myself and what I didn't want to do so that I might be able to do what God wanted me to do from the vantage point of Jesus Christ and with the love of Jesus Christ. And so I got some rest, some sleep, woke up early the next morning and set out to return to the gift of peace. And once again, I was asked to bathe Dennis. And I found something happening <laughs> as I was bathing Dennis, clothing Dennis, caring for Dennis. God answered my prayer. And in so doing, reminded me that this is not my work. This is not Joe's work. To the extent that it's Joe's work, it will fail. It's God's work. And I was thinking about this story in light of Benedict's words. What Benedict XVI speaks to is simply this. We must see with the eyes of Christ. We must love 
with the heart of Christ. We must give to others what they crave. It was only a week later that uh, Dennis passed away. In our last days together, we spent a great number of hours just talking. And with his red-soaked eyes, I remember him looking at me and being fulfilled, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus was doing. And the great irony of all of it was that as his red-soaked eyes were looking at me, it was the love of Jesus Christ himself who was piercing my own heart. Is this not the great truth of the gospel? Huh? Jesus in the gospel says what to us? It is when you go to the margins, to the poorest of the poor, that you come to me. And my dear friends, anytime we come to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is always going to be ministering to us. And it was in and through Dennis that I discovered something wonderful. And that is the deeper meaning of spiritual poverty. I thought I had so much to give to Dennis. And in the end, all I had to give to him was the extent that I was giving him the gift of Jesus Christ, which again, Jesus Christ reminded me in the days before. But what's so great and what's so wonderful is that it was I who needed him because Jesus was ministering to me through him. I was the one who was impoverished, impoverished in my relationships, impoverished in my expectation, impoverished in how I thought about love. And so it is, my dear friends, when you start talking about a journey into love, it is always a journey that has God showing us something new about how we are called to go deeper into that love. There is never a time where we have, quote unquote, arrived. Once you think you have become something, you are nothing. This is an overarching truth, because if you think you've arrived, well, then you have enough. But what have we said about the nature of love itself? It's inexhaustible. Enough is never enough. And this is the great adventure of the Christian and Catholic faith. Okay, so I want to turn to page 153 and excerpt 62. Benedict's words reads as follows. If I live solely out of a desire to be devout and to perform my religious duties, then my relationship with God becomes merely proper but loveless. Here's a great challenge before us, my friends. And Christopher West gets into this. What is a devout and dutiful but loveless religiosity worth? What is a a proper loveless relationship with God worth? Well, St. Paul provides for us a very stark answer that we should contemplate. Listen to these words. You've heard them before. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy kong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The converse of the Apostle Paul's nothing is to say that love is everything. The purpose of religious devotion is to grow more deeply in God's love for us, and in turn to express our love for God and neighbor. Again, this is the quintessential in God for other moment. To recite 
rote prayers in a loveless way or go to church on Sunday merely to punch one's attendance card is virtually meaningless. And we speak to virtually here because God can always break through our virtuality, if you will, one's loveless religiosity. But again, as I've talked about before in the past, we always go back to that ultimate measuring stick, motus operandi. What operates your motives? Why do you do what you do? As a friend recently coined, what is your why? (laughs) What is your why? If I go to Mass every day and do not grow in love, I gain nothing. If I give large sums of money to the poor but have not love, what have we gained? Nothing. (laughs) If I mentally accept all the church's teachings and have not love, we gain nothing. What did Benedict XVI say after he left the United States of America? was the first thing he said. Make sure that your life from Monday to Saturday is a reflection of who you worship on Sunday. That is to say, make sure that everything that you do in your external activity is a reflection of the one who you have encountered on Sunday. As Christopher West notes, and I think this to be so important in light of everything that we're talking about, religion without love, just like sex without love, turns man against himself and becomes a destructive phenomenon. Essentially, Religious conviction wreaks havoc when it is cut off from the truth that God is love. Deus caritas est. God is love. If you were to go back to the first paragraph of Benedict XVI, in his work, God is love, what does he say? In a world where the name of God is sometimes associated with vengeance or even a duty of hatred and violence, This message, as Benedict XVI says, is both timely and significant. For this reason, I wish in my first encyclical to speak of the love which God lavishes upon us and which we in turn must share with others. There it is. We must allow God to lavish his goodness upon us and in turn share it with others. This is the Mass, where we receive God's lavishness, if you will, and we are then missio, right? That is the Latin for Mass. We are sent forth to proclaim the wonderful deeds of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Excerpt 63, in our last excerpt, as we wrap up our discussion on the love that satisfies, love grows through love. Love is divine because it comes from God and unites us to God. Through this unifying process, it makes us a we, which transcends our divisions and makes us one, until in the end, God is all in all. Of course, the great passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. So as Christopher West notes here, I mean, this final quotation provides a fitting opportunity for us to really begin to summarize our reflections and to this radio program and and our evenings here together, then many months that we have been reflecting into this great topic of the love that satisfies. Because throughout we have been pondering the truth that God is love. 
at the foundation of all that is, we find not some impersonal magnetic force, not some divine, institutional, punitive authoritarian. What we find and discover is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love given, love received, love shared. We find a God who longs to share His own goodness, love, and bliss with His creatures, with man. How can we plumb the depths of such a mystery, of such a gift? Well, in His mercy, God has transcribed His own divine mystery in human language, making it accessible to us. Indeed, it is very close to us. For God inscribed a sign of his own mystery, of his own divine we, right in our humanity by creating us male and female and calling us to a human we. My dear friends, this is a great John Paul II moment. It really rests at the center of all of his Wednesday audiences on Theology of the Body. I'll say it again. God inscribed a sign of his own mystery, of his own divine we, right in our humanity by creating us male and female and calling us to a human we. What is that great passage from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. From the beginning, God calls man and woman to fulfill the divine image through their love for each other, right? Genesis 2, 24 says what? Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And as we have discussed from the beginning of creation, Eros was meant to express agape. That is, human, erotic love was meant to express divine sacrificial love. That could be the thesis of this book (laughs) and the first half of Benedict's encyclical. Indeed, the joining of spouses as one, with all its blood, sweat, tears, and joys, were meant to be a sign in the world that communicates God's eternal plan for the cosmos, that all things would be united as one in Christ Jesus. What is that passage from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10? That we might become one in Christ Jesus. The union of spouses in one flesh is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and his union with the church. Pope Francis was just talking about this himself, how the marriage and the love shared between husband and bride is a great mystery that is very much symbolic of the love shared between Christ and his church, reminding us that the family is the masterpiece to society because it is the cell to society. It gives society all of its life-giving power. You know, I have this thought in my head right now. We were just talking about the blood, sweat, and tears between male and female and how this communicates the deeper mystery between Christ and his church. Was not Christ in the garden sweating blood? For who? But his bride, the church, which pours forth, which gushes forth from his side. 
in blood and water, which of course, as we've discussed, signify the sacramental identity of the church, the water being baptism and the blood being the blood of the Eucharist. My dear friends, in every way, as the relationship shared between male and female point to the great mystery of that relationship between Christ and his church. And what more could be said of that relationship between Eros and Agape? The love of man and woman, Eros, establishes itself and grows through the love God lavishes on us. We were created from love, for love, and apart from love, we are going to be left clutching at empty space. So we, we must rekindle this godlike love in all of the concreteness and particularity of how we love in our marriages. As Benedict says, love grows through love. Love is divine because it comes from God and unites us to God. And through this unifying process, it makes us a we which transcends our divisions and makes us one. But here's a question that Christopher West poses, a great question. But what would happen if love were cut off from love? That is, if eros were cut off from agape. Well, <laughs> as Benedict XVI says, eros moved from agape is not an ascent in ecstasy towards the divine, but a fall, a degradation of man. Benedict XVI continues, eros needs to be disciplined and purified. We talked about this a great deal. If it is to provide not just fleeting pleasure, but a certain foretaste of the pinnacle of our existence, of that beatitude for which our whole being yearns. But how can eros be disciplined and purified so that it leads us to that beatitude or that happiness for which we yearn? Many would ask the question, is this even possible? In light of human frailty and weakness, it would seem that the love to which we are called simply does not correspond to our humanity. John Paul II once responded to this objection with what may well be one of his boldest proclamations of the power of the gospel in the church's history. He asks the question, what are the concrete possibilities of man? And of which man are we speaking? Of man dominated by lust or of man redeemed by Christ? This is what is at stake, the reality of Christ's redemption. The great saint continues, pulling us in to one of his most salient teachings that comes to us from Veritate Splendor. Christ has redeemed us. This means that he has given us the possibility of realizing the entire truth of our being. He has set our freedom from the domination of our concupiscence, our inclination to sin. He goes on, And if redeemed, man still sins. This is not due to an imperfection of Christ's redemptive act, but to man's will not to avail himself of the grace which flows from that act. You know, John Paul II uses the word domination. What does that word mean? Well, it stems from God's curios, his lordship. That translation is God dominating us, that we actually allow God's purity to invade our souls and to dominate us, not in a way that overwhelms us in a negative sense, but in its more positive sense of being overwhelmed in God's very purity, to be 
possessed by God's purity. John Paul II goes on and reminds us in very Veritatis Splendor that God's call to love as he loves is, quote, of course proportion demands capabilities, but to the capabilities of the man to whom the Holy Spirit has been given. This is the good news of the gospel. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And as Christopher West closes his book here, the men and women who welcome this glorious gift discover the love that satisfies. My dear friends, we yearn for something. And for so many of us, it has been very difficult to identify what that thing is. And my response to that is simply this. The something is a someone, a person. And when we discover that that person is the person of Jesus Christ, who entered into human history and takes sin upon himself, restores us in his mercy, brings us back to the purity of our origins. He invades our soul. And he says to you and I, that something that you long for, that you yearn for, is me, a person, not a thing, but God who has come to you in the flesh. Allow my purity to invade your soul, to restore you. Come to me, 24-7, 365. He says to us in the Eucharist, receive me, and in so receiving me, allow me to pervade every aspect of what you do. Allow my very life-giving body, blood, soul, and divinity to give shape and form to everything that you do, to everything that you touch, that it might turn into gold, spiritual gold, and I will satisfy your deepest yearnings your deepest desires, yearnings and desires you don't even know you have. That is why the Christian and Catholic faith is such a great adventure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I could never encourage you enough to spend time with the richness of the subject matter that we are discussing now, that by taking it to prayer, we might be launched into an eternal beatitude one that fulfills our deepest longings, and ultimately, one that will always have us longing for more, one that will have you always wanting to feast from the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we close with an invocation to the Holy Spirit, as Christopher West closes with an invocation to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come fill our hearts with the fire of your love so that we might set the world ablaze. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let us receive the warmth and the presence of the Holy Trinity, of that love shared between the Father and the Son, that we might evangelize the society we belong to. Always mindful that the first society, the first community of persons, is a community that belongs to love itself. That community, of course, being the Trinity. Come, Holy Spirit, come fill our hearts with the fire of your love so that we might set the world ablaze. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.